Welcome in to the Free Retiree Show, where we help you transform your life so you can become financially free. In this show, we'll give you the inside track on how to excel in your career, filter out the noise surrounding your finances to help you make smart financial decisions, and we'll learn from thought and business leaders who can help you live your best life. Welcome back in to another episode of the Free Retiree Show. I'm your host, Wealth Manager Lee Michael Murphy. I'm joined alongside by our career advisor, Sergio Patterson. What's up? And our attorney, he is off today. He's working on another case, but he'll be back in for the next episode. He's lazy. Um, yeah, he's lazy. He's probably just sleeping in his bed. This, yeah. this, early, this early recording time is just too much for Mr. Matt McElroy. So thank you everyone for tuning into the show. You are listening to a business owner and thought leader edition. On today's episode, we're going to be interviewing AI technologist and behavioral economist, Emmanuel Matthews. He is known as Mr. Health Intelligence. He's had the honor of being listed in the top 100 men of distinction in Black Enterprise Magazine. Uh, Emmanuel, he's accomplished some amazing things, and we're looking forward to him sharing his tips, his tricks, his experience in going through corporate America. But we'll also be talking about the challenges of dealing with racism in corporate America. Uh, Emmanuel is African-American. He's achieved a high level of success. So this is going to be a really great conversation. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast, share us, uh, like us on Facebook and uh, share us with your friends. And if you have a question about finances, career related, financial related, legal related, make sure you send them to ask at the free retiree. Dot com. All right, so we are going to go to the break, and when we're back, we're going to be sitting down with Emmanuel Matthews. Welcome back into the show. We are sitting down with Mr. Health Intelligence. Manuel Matthews, as we said before, top 100 men of distinction by Black Enterprise Modern Magazine. He helped contribute to a book on product inclusion called Building for Everyone, Expand Your Market with Design Practices from Google's Product Inclusion Team. He's on the advisory board of the Youth Impact Hub in Oakland and career development and mentoring trainee committee program for the East Bay College Fund. And he is also part of Big Brothers and Big Sisters. What an amazing resume. Emmanuel, we're happy to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm great, Lee. How are you? Doing fantastic. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining, Emmanuel. Um, I, all these accolades, man. I knew, you had, I knew you were accomplished. This is a lot. I'm, I'm extremely excited to have you on the show. I appreciate it, man. Oh, man. Thanks, Sergio. So I got to ask, you know, you can tell a lot by, you know, someone's nickname. So for I'll just give you a little backstory for me. You know, my friends call me the panda, um, you know, because I like to raid the kitchen a lot and eat a lot. Sergio got the name Serge. That's his nickname because I think he was named after a defunct a soft drink company. Hey, hey, hey. And uh, Matt McGarrett. Is that Yeah. I think that is true. That is true. Sir, my name is Sergio. It was just Serge, short Sergio. Yes. You remember those, hey, well, those terrible commercials about the drink? People were like, Serge. Yeah. Hey. That's, that's, how, that's how he got it. That's the truth. It was a great commercial. It was, um, uh, yeah, it was, it was, and then it went out of style. And then uh, Matt McElroy, our attorney, who's not here today, his actually, his nickname was The Rat. 
growing up. Uh, I won't go into any details. That's all you need to know about that nickname. So I would say out of all of us, man, you have definitely the <laughs> best nickname as Mr. Health Intelligence. Tell us, how did you do so well with your nickname versus us? I'm not going to lie. I have no idea. Uh, someone way more creative came up with that uh, from Black Enterprise. Um, that was not a self-selected uh, nickname at all. <laughs> um, actually, I probably have the most boring nickname out of all of us, which is just E. E, okay. Um, well, E is still cooler than all of ours. I, I don't know. I, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's way shorter than saying Emmanuel every time, you know, so. Um, but I think uh, actually the, 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 the Mr. Health Intelligence came from the fact that at the time when the uh, when I made the Black Enterprise list, I was working for DeepMind Health, and so I was focused on AI and healthcare. Um, particularly, my role was focused on helping expand the team in the UK. You know, DeepMind's based in the UK, um, and we were expanding to the US. So uh, it was just I think it just it just happened to coincide with the time, um, and was a kind of a catchy thing. That's pretty much the origin of that. Tell us about like what you do right now in your in your day-to-day -day job what does that entail oh man that's a great question this is a great question i ask myself every day um <laughs> <laughs> i feel like it really does change uh by the week and by the month but primarily my focus right now um, i work at course hero which is an online education platform um, that grants students access to students and educators access to resources um, that you know help uh, students ultimately uh, prepare for their courses and, and hopefully graduate successfully and prepared. And my role at Coursera specifically is focused on uh, AI um, and really trying to think about how we can use AI to create uh, uh, or enable personalized and, and, and adaptive learning experiences for students. Um, and then the other hat that I wear uh, is, is helping lead the diversity, inclusion, and equity initiatives. Um, uh, which, which is something that's been near and dear to my heart for a really long time, which is probably part of the reason why I think my, 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 what my day looks like really does change depending on what kind of projects I'm working on at the time. Awesome. So right now you are currently in charge of diversity and inclusion. When did you sign up for this role? Like, did you sign up for the? I can't imagine you signed up for this role in yeah, the last couple yeah. months, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, Tell us what do you what do you do in this that particular role? Because I'm very curious. I cannot see you being like in the last couple months. Like, that's a good. That's a good. That's a good thing for me to do right now. But like, yeah. tell us more about that. Like, how did you sign up for that? When did you sign up for that? And what does that entail right now? Oh man, that's a loaded. That's a loaded question. Um, that's, a, that's certainly a loaded was, question. Yeah. Uh, that's a fantastic question, but it's a loaded question. Um, I think the truth is, um, it is something that, you know, creating equity through technology has always been something I've been passionate about. It was the entire reason I got into technology to begin with. So the opportunity to be able to kind of leverage that, that, that in, in kind of intrinsic motivation that I had to help uh, balance the equation, particularly for underrepresented groups uh, who have all the skills in the world but tend to not have the opportunities extended to them. Um, something that I've just always wanted to be able to influence. And so I think, you know, leaving Google, coming to Course Hero, um, and having a more broad locus of control uh, allows me to actually make influential changes at a systemic level that um, I think is just personally extremely gratifying. Um, but I think you actually raised a really interesting point, which is oftentimes you do have 
you know, people of color or people of underrepresented groups who are, um, let's say, non-voluntarily thrusted into becoming yeah. like diversity and inclusion experts. Yeah, it happens, even, happens all the time. All the time, right? And, yeah. and, and uh, there's, lots of, there's lots of challenges and problems and issues that come along with that. But um, in this case, I think um, I actually approached my COO um, and had a conversation um, and uh, his response was extremely, extremely positive. And this is, this is months ago. Um, this is before, this is pre-COVID. So uh, I think from my perspective, the amount of energy and interest that the executives demonstrated showed me that there was a real opportunity for me to actually move the needle. And that was enough for me at least to give it a chance, to give it an opportunity. And the more, yeah. I, the more work I started to do, the more I started seeing how from everyone, from my CEO, um, all the way to you know, the, the, the employees who are working in the company who were actually really interested in changing the company. And uh, when you're in a space like that and you have the opportunity and you have the, the, the ear and you actually have a perspective that actually could help shift the, the, the organization and make it more equitable, it's very hard for me to, to, to pass that kind of opportunity up because it doesn't happen every day. So, E, can you explain the differences between equities and inequities, just for the audience, just to give people a little bit of background on that? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really good question, and I think that's a an important there's a really important distinction that needs to be made, um, particularly because I use equity a lot, and I think people are used to hearing uh, equality, and um, I often try to make sure that people don't conflate the difference between equality and equity. So equality specifically um, is uh, when you start to think of like equal opportunity, um, it's really about uh, having evenly distributed. Uh, resources or, or access that span across everything. Equity is a little bit different because equity is really thinking about guaranteeing or creating uh, uh, fairness while at the same time acknowledging that for some groups there have been uh, barriers that have you know prevented their full participation uh, in opportunities um, and, and barriers for their access historically. And so it is really about thinking about almost corrective justice uh, to ensure that there actually is equal opportunity on both sides because um, um, you know, equality is really predicated on the idea that uh, everyone has always had equal access, treatment, and outcomes. Um, and we know that's not necessarily true. So I think a, a good example, um, I, I think I like to think about design, you know, a, a good example of, I think, an equitable situation would be uh, if you were thinking about, you know, creating a building, um, obviously, you know, people who are able-bodied can use the stairs. Um, however, you know, if you are in a wheelchair, for instance, um, to be able to grant someone the same access to that building, um, you would have to do something fundamentally different so that they both um, both the person with a disability or the person in the wheelchair um, and the able-bodied person who can walk up the steps have the equal opportunity to enter the building. And so creating things like a, 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 a wheelchair ramp or an elevator um, is something that would uh, essentially uh, be an equitable design to ensure that both people, both parties have access. And so um, when I talk about equity, I, uh, when I, when I, as I speak, I'm, I'm generally talking about equity and not equality. Um, because I think, again, it is really important to recognize that for a lot of these groups, there are very different circumstances that prevent their full participation. Um, and 
And so that's, that's generally the term that I, I tend to lean towards, because uh, there's a lot of cases that you wouldn't even want there to be true equality, uh, or it's impossible to, to, to create real equality without um, uh, uh, focusing on equity. Yeah. Hey, Emmanuel, are you focused on building out the ERG at Core Zero, so the Employee Resource Group, or are you more focused on really like trying to make it more inclusive and more inclusive place and organization for um, for black people, black and brown people, people of color? Uh, certainly, um, it's really focused on equity. Um, okay. And I actually tend to shy away from even talking about it from a perspective of diversity and inclusion, okay. because I tend to think that when we talk about that, we tend to think of inequity as an output, meaning we have less people who are people of underrepresented background or from disenfranchised backgrounds who are present in our organizations or th and thriving there. Um, I actually like to think about it from inequity as an input, because our, these inputs create the output. And so, um, you know, if we focus on creating the structure that enables uh, people all, you know, all throughout the organization to be able to, I guess, take up the mantle for equity work, um, you actually can scale to a degree um, with equity in mind that it's very difficult to do otherwise, right? Because inequity is not like blunt force trauma. It's like a death by a thousand cuts. So you know, thinking that you can have one single solution to solve that type of problem, even from a you know even if you have the buy-in from a ceo is 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 almost a uh is a recipe for disaster because the inequity that's perpetuated and and, and persists is is a byproduct of the decisions that every single person makes every single day who's on the ground right and that's not just the ceo now obviously they have the broadest locus of control and amount of influence but um their their responsibility is to create the structure that allows everyone else to use their autonomy to create more equity. Um, and so that's really what I want to focus on. And I think ERGs are interesting ways that you can help support, you know, your, your, your I think they're actually extremely important ways that you support your employees yeah. um, and ensure that they, they have a strong sense of belonging and in a community there. Um, you know, you and I at Google had uh, uh, spent a lot of time together working with our ERGs. And I, I can honestly say, I don't know if I would have survived at Google for six and a half years if I had not been part of you know, Ola and the Black Googler Network yeah. um, and, and uh, you know, the other ERGs. So I think they're, they are important, but I think focusing on the structure, because again, inequity is about structure, um, not just uh, outcomes. Yeah, I like that. I think it's interesting that you had the ability to get the ear of your COO versus our time at Google. The impact I think you can have now is so much stronger because you know, Corsair is a great company, but it's obviously smaller. Right. And like you're you're on the ground level, right? I, I assume you're on the ground floor. You're make you're helping make decisions. You're making decisions. Um, so I think, to me, that's interesting because you go from Google for the audience. Emmanuel's at Google, where you can have some impact, but it's like much tougher. I think it's much harder to actually have true impact. I mean, that's you're you're spot on. Um, the you know, the fact that, you know, my CEO called me earlier this week. I was talking to him about some, about Juneteenth um, a few weeks ago. Um, and he, he called me just to, to kind of just to check in. Like, those are, like, I think, you know, th those are the things that you hear about and think about when you start working at a startup. You're like, oh, it's a much smaller company. Um, you know, you have, you know, oftentimes you have more autonomy. You have a little bit more freedom. Maybe you also have the ability to uh, 
have direct access to people who may have been out of reach at other companies. And I also just think about the amount of inertia or e effort it takes to do any activity is significantly less here. Like that bar is not the same. Like, you know, at Google, like, you know, you really have to like strategize about how you're going to get stuff done and then also have the, the fortitude to like, push through every roadblock and hurdle. Um, here they can make decisions extremely fast, partially because, you know, at startups, they don't have the same amount of process, but um, either way, I think the outcome is you do end up having uh, levels of influence that uh, it's very difficult. Or it takes a long time to build at Google. So, I mean, I got, I'm going to read a couple of stats off for you and I just want to get your thoughts on these. So according to the Economic Policy Institute, overall average wage for black workers in 2019 was $21.05. White workers, it was $28.66. According to the Brookings Institute on close examination of wealth in the U.S. finds that staggering racial disparities at 171,000, the net worth of a typical white family, 10 times greater than that of the black family. And that's 17,150 in 2016. So how do you move the needle? I know it's not one straight answer, like, but what are you guys trying to do? Or what are you trying to do based off your responsibility at your company? Like, give us a little insight on that. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, I think first, like, there, as you, I think the really important thing that you mentioned, like, is there is no one right answer. I think there are lots of. Uh, it, it's going to take a lot of different people's perspectives at, to attack this problem from different angles. Um, one of the things that I actually think about quite a lot is I, I and I actually started using this analogy a few weeks ago. You know, so I played football in college, and I was thinking about you know I mentioned the thing the the death by a thousand cuts. Um, and I was thinking, like, you know, what's the solution? Like, how do you actually solve a problem that, that, that's that big? When you think about systemic racism or you think about inequality or inequity, how do you actually wrap your head around just making any progress at all? And I realized that, you know, if you look at a football team, at any given time, there's 22 players on the field, 11 on offense and 11 on defense. I uh, was a cornerback in college. And I was thinking about like, what makes a good cornerback a good cornerback? Like, what makes a good defense a good defense? And the answer is every single person on that team is responsible for one thing, and that is their role. If you are a corner, your responsibility, again, if depending on your coverage, right? If I am in man coverage, my responsibility is not to look in the background. It's not to check to see if my linebacker to my right is doing their job, to see if maybe something else is shifting. If the defense, the, regardless of if there is an audible call, if the defense has not, if your defensive coordinator and your captain has not changed your formation or changed anything, you're, you play your responsibility. And if you tell every, Richard Sherman that he blew it in the Super Bowl. <laughs> but that's what it is. Like you ask when, when you when you see people have busted coverages, you go, well, "How did they get open?" It's because they're looking in the backfield; they're not following their responsibility. And if every single person plays just their responsibility, you will win the game. Yeah. Period. And so I think about that as kind of a uh, I use that as as a as a, a kind of a metaphor as I think about inequity. You know, my locus of control. And my, my, and you'll hear me use that a lot because I think that's really important for us to understand where our power is um, and where we have unique opportunity to create equity. And, you know, I think the idea that we are a, you know, course hero is an uh, education startup. 
uh, is, is incredible because I think, you know, education is the foundation for everything that we do. And so if you can create equity in education, if you can create opportunity and allow and help students uh, not just access or get to college, but get through college and do it successfully, um, you can absolutely change the economic situation for a lot of communities. And I think particularly because, you know, it's an online platform, there are lots of communities or underrepresented communities who are people from underrepresented backgrounds who don't have the same support structures that, uh, that a lot of folks with privilege have. Um, uh, and so to be able to access, you know, you get a lot of stuff for free whenever you go to college on campus. And I, actually, I guess maybe I take that back. It's not free. It's very expensive. But <laughs> there's a lot of additional value um, of being present on campus, right? To be able to have the community, be able to interface with professors, to be able to have a network. Um, and, you know, given where you see the trend in online education moving, again, because the cost of education is so high, um, and you have a lot of people who have... Um, you know, families that are going back to school, uh, single parents that are going back to school um, and, and getting degrees. And so they, these, these folks need support. Um, they, need, they need additional ways to help ensure that they can be as prepared as they can be um, for their classes. And so I think, you know, we have a unique opportunity to help create, and, uh, create equity at the higher education level. Um, but I also do believe that we also can send a, be a beacon for other organizations, uh, other tech companies about what equity could look like. And that's, again, one of the reasons that I'm so fired up because, um, you know, when I was helping build the, the, the first DeepMind Health engineering team in the U.S., I had gender parity for our engineers. Um, when I hired my, uh, I was uh, leading the data analytics and uh, data science team at Coursera for the last probably maybe nine months up until a few months ago, um, or actually for my first nine, like nine months at Coursera, um, and I had gender parity in all of my hiring, right? And it's not because I, I had a quota. I didn't, you know, I wasn't sitting here and telling someone like, I need to make sure that you hire 50% women and 50% men. But whenever you are intentional, it's, what it includes, it's, not, it's not rocket science. When you are intentional about making sure that there is equity in the process, you end up having positive results. And so again, if we as an organization can demonstrate that we can create and scale a billion dollar company that has gender parity in engineering or and has no gaps in terms of pay disparity between gender um, and if we if we can do that it is an example to the rest of the industry that says oh we were really struggling because we only are able to attract or retain five percent no if, if if that that is a clear a clear indicator that there is more that you can do um, and so i think you know, again, I, there's lots of other things that I obviously believe contribute to those kind of statistics that you mentioned, Lee, but, you know, I think focusing on my locus of control, this is how I have an opportunity to influence that. And if everyone takes a similar, uh, you know, a, a similar mindset where they are in their space, uh, I, I really do believe the world will look drastically different in a yeah. short order. I love that, man. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, what stood out to me is being intentional. So I think in the hiring process, it's not about sitting there saying, hey, we need, like you said, 50% women, 50%, whatever it is, at least have people in the process. Because if you give them that, if they're in that, if they have a chance, it's likely that they're going to do well. But if they don't get the chance, it's, it's impossible. But there's nothing in the pipeline. There's, there's zero chance for that outcome that we all want. Yeah, and and I'll, I'll be honest, like we didn't, we didn't do any crazy, like, super great program that somehow attracted this like super group of talent 
we it was the same it was the same process the, the difference is that every single meeting we had about recruiting i asked about our talent pipeline and the diversity of our talent pipeline that was it how every single week i checked in and said like what is how is the talent pipeline shaping up how and obviously you can't explicitly know um you know whether or not you have what percentage are african-american yeah. what percentage are whoever but like again the idea that it is that important that you bring it up every day sets the standard for what the expectations are and then as i went and created the interview panel ensuring that we had a panel um, and a process that was in place that would make sure that we are accounting for the types of values and, and, and attributes that we legitimately want um, and that will complement um, or not complement um, rather enhance um, our organization not just maintain the status quo and so again it's just about being intentional uh, it's uh, and you're going to have gaps you're going to make mistakes but again that's why you have a team that's why you should have a diverse team that's why i made sure that we had a an extremely diverse hiring panel um, and there were some instances i mean i think there was a really great example where there was a uh, one of our engineers was interviewing a gentleman and actually there were two there were two uh, 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 women engineers um, who were interviewing and everyone was like this this person was did a really great job like the the the, the gentleman who was interviewing did a great job uh, or the candidate did a great job and i remember one of the women mentioned you know he talked over me a lot and it made me kind of uncomfortable because it kind of felt like he was undermining my questioning and the other woman spoke up and said actually you know what i had a similar experience in a different way and so we kind of take, took a step back and i was like i didn't have that experience and my boss didn't have the experience and someone else didn't have the experience and we were all men and i was like okay well obviously like this is not like that's not a good signal now i can't tell wow. you that you are yeah, prejudiced wow. or i can't tell you that you're biased but i can tell you that there is a distinct difference between how you treated the women in our organization and the men and if we had a group or a panel full of men we would have never caught that so wow. I, again, it's not it's not it's not rocket science, and it's not the, you know you should never expect that you're you solely have to figure everything out. But when you are intentional, you can ensure that you end up with a pipeline and an organization that is diverse. Because again, like I don't I, I don't know who you know we talk about diversity and inclusion, and people make it seem like uh, you know black people have been saying like you know what actually I want a job. And I don't actually want to work for it. Like that's not. I've never heard anyone ever say that. Like I've never heard anyone say that. Like I've I've never heard someone say I'm not qualified for that job, but I want that job and I deserve that job even though I'm not qualified. Like I don't know people. I've never people said I want that job, yeah. but I've never heard anyone say I deserve that job. And so I firmly believe that equity is the solution because there is no issue with talent. The issue is not with the talent. The issues with the process that prohibits the opportunity for the talent so if i create an opportunity to let every single person equally uh, uh participate in this opportunity then as the cards fall i really believe you will end up in a much more equitable and diverse situation which yes. is what which has happened it's incredible um i don't want to go too deep here but uh you mentioned hiring panel and having a diverse hiring panel so i recently not re actually, I probably shouldn't say this on the podcast, but let's just say over the last several <laughs> years, I was I was interviewing for a job, right, at a giant giant tech company, and I didn't realize this until I really thought about my panel. But every single person I interviewed was what and interviewed with was white, from the recruiter to the hiring manager, 
uh, to the, there were three rounds of like virtual interviews. Yep. And I didn't think about this until later. I didn't get this role. Um, thinking back, I'm happy I didn't get the role. Because I don't think anybody in the room ever even thought about the hiring panel, but every, I, I talked to 12 to 14 different people from this company. Every single one was white. Hmm. And they were all good people. I just like, I'd love just to get your quick perspective on like the hiring panel and how important it is to have diverse, whether it's men, women, diverse people, like whatever it is. Cause to me thinking back, I'm like, I don't know, they were cool people, but I think it was, it was something that stuck out that still stands out to me in my mind today. I mean, it's natural, right? Because the idea of belonging uh, has a lot to do with degrees of homogeneity, right? And so what you just experienced was the fact that there was zero <laughs> homogeneity where you were. And like, and again, like, you know, as, as you mentioned, this is not speaking about who these people are yeah. or what they stand for, what they believe, but it is an indi it is a potential indicator about the organization um, and whether or not they actually understand your full value. Um, um, and I think there's a there's there it ends up being kind of a chicken and the egg problem where you have these organizations that are not diverse, and then you're trying to hire diverse candidates and talent, but you don't even have people, you don't have enough diversity to even diversify your <laughs> your pipe your 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 panel to be able to then interview candidates, right? And then you get into these issues of tokenism, right? Well, if you end up being the only uh, uh, um, you know, person of color at your organization, what are they gonna thrust you into every single interview panel with every underrepresented person, right? Like you're not, that's not what they're paying you for, right? And that's, that shouldn't be, that is not your responsibility, which is what was interesting that Lee brought up earlier, the question about, did you sign up for, did you sign up for that? Um, <laughs> because oftentimes that's what ends up happening, right? You're, you end up being the only one and you go, okay, well, uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm down, I, I'm happy to do this, yeah. so you do it. Um, but I, I think the important, one of the important things that organizations can do at that point is really take time to understand and look at their process. And as a candidate, one of the things I tell my, my uh, as a mentor, one of the things I tell uh, people who are moving into to the job market, um, particularly people of color, I legitimately have them push back. And one of the questions I have them ask every single leader is how have you demonstrated a commitment to equity on your team? Now, I'm not, and, I, and when I say this, I literally mean this the same way they ask me an interview question. Like, I don't, if you, if you dodge the question, I'll push harder. That does not mean grill you. And I'm not looking for a perfect answer. I wanna know, do you even think about it? Is it even something that's on your radar? Are you going to give me a, I care about diversity because we all know the right things to say, right? That's not the issue. I want to understand how much, how important, you may not even have a solution, but at least let me hear that you've struggled with that challenge before um, and you think about it and it bothers you or, or you're happy with where your team is or your organization is or the things that you've done in the past or where we have opportunities at the company, right? Like give me something of substance uh -huh. that you have demonstrated, yeah. not don't talk to me about theory. Um, and so I think those are questions that I actually have are, are you know, my, my mentees ask in wow. interviews. Um, That's a tough question. I mean, I, for a leader, like I'd be, do your mentees tell you what kind of answers they get? They're all over the board, but they're all, <laughs> they're, all, they're, all they're all, they're all over the board. And, and again, yeah. I, 
I would never tell them that they have to do that because you know, I'm a mentor, not, not, not a parent. I'm not gonna be like, you yeah. have to, you have to ask this question. But again, if you believe that, you know, your manager makes or breaks so much of your experience, if they don't, yeah. if they don't understand the intrinsic value and unique value that you contribute, um, you're going to be in a really tough spot. Um, particularly when you eventually want to stand up and say something and you may not feel empowered to do it when you first start a company, that makes sense. Um, but I definitely don't want to be in a place where I feel that my voice is not something that I can elevate um, because I am the only contrarian amidst this, you know, this group of uh, this, this bundle of homogeneity. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah. So I, I, I think one of the things that you can do as an organization, if you are in that situation where you're like, okay, well, I know that my team's not diverse. I don't have any women and I don't have any people of color. I don't have any uh, folks who identify as LGBTQ plus. I don't have anyone who um, has a disability. I don't have anyone who is veteran status. I don't have, like, I don't have any of these things. Um, I think it then becomes your, your responsibility to do the same thing you would do if you were trying to build a product from scratch is one, either hire someone to help you figure it out or two, make sure that you take that up as, as a, an absolute priority to ensure that whatever your process is, actually addresses and catches as many gaps as possible. Because again, the, the issue with homogeneity is blind spots. So the more you can help mitigate or catch your blind spot. Um, and then I think you also have to be honest, right? Like uh, I, I posted on LinkedIn after uh, a lot of the George Floyd stuff. And I, I was right, wrote two articles on, on, on kind of race in America. And, you know, folks reached out and were talking to, you know, we're, we're concerned about my career and we're, you know, uh, you know, voiced that, you know, I'm taking a very public stance on, on something that is a taboo topic on a platform like LinkedIn, you know, where, like, and it, it was, it actually came from a good place. Like they were really concerned um, for my future marketability. And I told them like, look, I, you know, I, this is like self-selection, right? If, 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 if this is not who you like, when I show up at your company, you are going to hate me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so, I, I, can, I can promise you that. For the audience, Lee or uh, Emmanuel has in it like the most incredible ability, influencing, strategic. He can get you. He can sell like anything to anyone. So you like if you don't if you can't take Emmanuel for what he what he's about, then don't have Emmanuel in your company because he's not gonna let you get by with. It. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not. Or you're gonna try to run me out of the door real quick. So and that is not something I want to do. You know, that's what I, look. The job search is exhausting. So so Emmanuel, you, we just had this horrific incident the killing of george floyd it, it sounds like from what your stance is and what you're doing at your company it, it sounds it sounds awesome but like what do you do i mean i feel like you almost have to do something different you know or just start something to deal with what everyone has just experienced like is you guys are you guys doing anything differently are you just more focused within within course hero within course hero um, I think just right now is a it's a difficult time for a lot of people for lots of different reasons, and they are all these reasons are starting to compound on each other. I am a huge proponent of therapy, so I will say right now everyone needs to like drop what they're doing and find a therapist because it is like <laughs> single-handedly one of the greatest things I've ever done in my life. Um, I second that. I've done it. It's amazing. It's it's absolutely phenomenal. Like I don't. I am completely for trying to de remove the stigma around mental health and going to therapy. Uh, but to answer, you know, to answer your question, I think um, one of the things that I want 
and that I think is our responsibility is to help people kind of channel their anxiety in, in a constructive way. Because for a lot of folks, this is the first time they've been, they're really engaging with and grappling with the concept of, of race. And I think there's lots of implications for that, again, especially amidst the pandemic, amidst such having such a polarized political climate. Um, you know, uh, there there is a lot of instability in people's lives right now. And that has lots of impact on their ability to be productive, um, their, their, uh, their ability to engage, and, and they need outlets. And so I think kind of going back to the idea um, uh, of, you know, what our responsibility is, um, I think the first thing we can do is to be extremely cognizant of that impact um, and that psychological effects of this, this time on our employees and our teams. Um, and as leaders, it's our responsibility to ensure that we are extremely mindful of that in everything that we do. Um, and I think, you know, Andrew uh, Grauer, who's our CEO, he wrote a really beautiful uh, note um, for Juneteenth where he kind of talked about using it specifically as a day of rest um, and a day of rest and celebration and reflection um, uh, amidst some other things. But I really appreciated his, his explicit understanding of the kind of cognitive state of the company right now, which I believe is kind of a microcosm of what everyone else is kind of feeling. And, you know, I, I think the one thing I tried to caution us against, though, is, is reactionary reactionary action. There's a, very, there's a very interesting thing that's kind of playing out right now where people are, are very conscious of and wary of performative action that's not substantive. But there's also this reactionary, almost reactionary component that people can't stop themselves from, from exhibiting. And those two things often tend to be in conflict with each other. And so I think one of the things that we can do that I explicitly try to do is to, is to, to think about how do I channel the momentum and the energy in a direction that actually can substantially move the needle, but not simply because it's a knee-jerk reaction to something that's happening right now. And the easiest, the, in the way I, 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 the way I think about that is the fact that this is not new for me. No part of this world right now is, is new to me. Um, okay, COVID's new, for sure. COVID is, definitely, <laughs> COVID is definitely new. Okay, there's a lot of things in this world that are new to me, but race is certainly not one of them. Mm -hmm. And I've been grappling with these challenges. My, I, you know, my, my best friend's mother, she's known me since I was literally born. Um, she actually is a director, uh, senior director for race and justice at the YWCA in Pittsburgh. And I sent her my articles and was like, hey, um, what do you think? Like, I would love your, your thoughts and feedback. And her response was, you know, it makes me really proud that to see you write such a passionate article. Um, it also makes me sad that, you know, 30 years later, you're still carrying up the work that I took up so you wouldn't have to do this. And so when I think about you know, re the, just the knee-jerk reactions that people are having. I, I tend to try to get us to, to rein that in because, again, change, I, I understand people's desire to have an impact. I think particularly in tech, we are very focused on scale and we are very focused on metrics. 
And to be honest, when you're trying to change people's hearts, scalability is not the first thing that is you're going to be yes, able to figure out. 100%. And so, Excellent point. You know, so what, what, what I want to get us to do, again, is to slow down, to really start thinking about our, our levers for equity. Again, our locus of control and our unique opportunities to really make a difference. And I think it does, you get a few things for free, right? You, one, the outcomes will be substantially better. The second piece is you will be able to sustain that. And I think that is one of the things that you see a lot of folks of color holding people accountable to on platforms like LinkedIn right now, who are saying that you're, 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 you're making these statements, you're giving this funding, that's good, that's a one-time thing, what will you do in six months? Will you still be giving money to you know, uh, 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 the NAACP? Would you still be investing in you know, uh, you know, Black-owned businesses? Would you still be investing in, like, those are the questions that people are asking because they're seeing a lot of this reaction, uh, I guess, action that's, that's kind of spawned from the anxiety uh, of, of what people are seeing right now, and it's very reactionary. So um, I think that's one of the things that we really have to kind of focus on uh, if we are to be able to sustain equitable work for the long haul. That's incredible. I mean, I 100% agree. I think, I think initially I was, I was happy about, you know, going on LinkedIn and seeing all these companies stepping up. And I'm like, well, race has been a thing my whole life. Right. So where were you 20 years ago or 15 years ago when right. my dad was dealing with it at his corporate America job? Right. So I, th I think I agree with you. And, and I think I'm going to pause. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to be cautious when I see some of these companies coming out, I'm going to like, before I celebrate and click that emoji, <laughs> I'm going to like take a step back and be like, okay, well, what, what are some real things you're doing? I think this is great, great advice. Really now, good perspective. Now I, I will say though, like, those those one-time donations are impactful. Like yeah. let's let's like let's not get it twisted, right? That, yeah, that, yeah. that that money is very impactful. Like you know, I think I think Google invested. Um, I think Google invested 150 million dollars to a racial justice. Uh, uh, I heard about that to, to, through like, Google.org for racial justice. That's that's like a game-changing amount of money, right? Even if it was a one-time thing, and they're like, "Oh, that's it. We did our we did our thing for the black community." If that's if that's it, like. That's, that's a, that is a substantial amount. There's a substantial amount of impact that could be had from that money. So again, I don't want to make it seem like a one-time action does nothing. But I would ask you, why, why are you taking a one-time action? Who is it for? Because I would almost guarantee you, if you're doing it once, if you understand the problem, you've done it once, you're not doing it for the community that you're trying to fix. So what has been the hardest obstacle for you in your journey with race going through corporate America? I mean, you've, you've, you've attained an impressive level of success. You're highly respected in Silicon Valley. How do you think race has impacted your journey through corporate America? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> End of the, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, so I think the interesting thing is race has impacted everything every aspect and every component of my life big and small i can't divorce it from myself in the same way i can't divorce being a cisgendered straight male from myself um i am black and every piece of the world that i have ever engaged with 
has been a reaction to my blackness and also like my effort uh, uh, has also had a been interpreted in certain ways because of my blackness. That will never change. It has never changed. Um, and I'm proud of and love all of my blackness. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, and so, uh, but, but particularly I think in corporate America, um, and I guess the reason I say that is because oftentimes, again, we think about, we, we think about race in certain contexts, but race is my context, period, right? There, it mm. is all of our context. And I think if people started to understand that, then it would be much easier to discuss race because we're not just discussing it in the context of an indictment, right? We bring it up in, as an, in, we, when we talk about race today, we talk about it um, in the context of an indictment towards whiteness or an indictment towards something. And it's, or a disparity here. And, 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 and yes, there are certainly disparities that are very real and present because of race, but it is all of my context and it, is, it, it, shapes, it has shaped every part of my life. Um, and uh, I would not change any part of my life. And so I think that's one thing that I think is really important for us to keep in mind. If I think about it specifically for uh, race in the context of corporate America, I think the first thing that uh, I had to realize that I think I really kind of struggled with is this idea or this concept that there is a almost like a mental depiction, like a mental model of what a good engineer or product manager or technologist does and how they talk and what they say and what they do and how they move and what they read. And like, I, I believe that there is a, like a, 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 a paradigm or a prototype that I should try to mold myself to try to be like. And in doing that, I effectively diminished every piece of unique value that I could possibly contribute to a, a company because they don't need another robot. They don't need another person to say the same thing the last person said. That's not what unique value is. And so it took me a really long time to start to understand that the perspectives that I learned because of how I grew up, where I grew up, um, uh, the schools that I went to, the things that I've experienced, my direct and indirect experience. There's a really interesting thing called a bias box. Um, and uh, I used to talk about this a lot at Google when I would coach people. Um, I was an innovation guru, so I would, I would coach Googlers um, and kind of help them work through challenges and problems and help them think uh, outside of the box and, and talk a lot about how to drive innovation uh, at, at, on teams. Um, and, and I think the bias box is really is really interesting because it... it uh, you know, I, I, certainly, I certainly didn't invent it, and I'm trying to remember who to attribute it to, um, but I will, I will just simply make the disclaimer, I didn't come up with it. But um, uh, effect, effectively, it talks about these, 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 these conditions, um, and you have internal conditions, so it's like your genetic heritage. You have your direct experience, which is your successes and your failures, and that, that includes things like implicit and ex explicit experience. You have things like your boundary conditions, your environment. Um, and you have things like your indirect experience. So things that you have learned implicitly or explicitly, um, but indirectly. And so meaning it's not something I personally experienced it. It's something I learned through schooling is a good example, right? Um, I'm learning about something through someone else. You know, I realized that everyone has a unique composition of all of those characteristics. And those are what make you unique, which is why I know two people are the same. And so 
when I really felt that my career started to take off was the moment I realized that those things were things I should lean into and that the way I think about building technology is influenced by my experiences with folks like my father, who, you know, was a proud black man, was not, you know, worked his butt, he works harder than any person on the face of the earth, even to this day. Um, but, you know, when it comes to using technology, he would struggle quite a bit. And I remember one day, um, if he listens to this, he's probably gonna, he probably won't even remember this. Um, but I remember one day he was looking at his phone. He was, he was, I was trying to help him with his phone. And I just saw this look of like frustration on his face that I haven't seen in a while. And maybe I don't, maybe I think a while is not right. I don't ever think I've seen it. And it really hit me different because I, at the time I was working at Google. So I was thinking, I spent a lot of time thinking about innovation and design thinking and, and user experience. And so it hit me in a way that was very odd because I real I, it made me think, you know, my dad has worked his butt off and to create a life for me, which is amazing. And I, now I'm able to, you know, contribute and, and build incredible technology. I never want to see that look that he had on his face on any product. No one should have to have that look simply because they, you know, didn't, Either they didn't go to college or they yeah. haven't had a chance to be able to use all the latest technology. Lee, the Lee knows that look very well. Lee, <laughs> yeah, Lee. I, I go every day. I have that <laughs> yeah, look every like, day, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, we all had, we've all had that look, but it, it, it touched me in such a personal way because it was my father that, that, that really set me off on this trend of like, okay, well, how should, how should product experiences be built? And as I started learning about that and thinking about the experiences that I've had, I was like, wow, okay. So, I do have some instincts around what I think should be right and what I believe we should do, even if that is contrary to what we are currently doing or what we have already done. And again, the moment I started to lean into that stuff is when everything, like the world opened up um, and the types of projects that I was able to do, um, the types of people I was able to work with and influence was so far beyond what I could have ever imagined. Um, I can only, you know, it, it sometimes terrifies me to imagine what, what, where I would be today had I not had that epiphany. Um, and it's likely an influence also, I, you know, again, I, I, I've been thinking about it uh, as I've been talking and I, I would also probably guess that there is probably a strong influence of a mentor uh, in there somewhere. And I'm not sure which one, cause I had quite a few mentors at Google. Um, and so I don't want to do any misattribution there either, but uh, it, I, it, I would likely say that was also probably catalyzed by a mentor, uh, mentor too. I think what's tough uh, in Silicon Valley is you mentioned prototype, the prototype person that your manager is trying to mold you into or the performance review that's trying to tell you, hey, you need to fill these gaps or you need to do this or that. Yep. I think what I've struggled with in my career in Silicon Valley is just this, what you just mentioned and being okay with leaning in on who I really am and the, the unique value that I bring. So I think like what you just said is if for any, anyone, any one person that's listening to the show, I think that's huge. Like that's a quotable, like we need to share that a hundred times, thousand times. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's awesome. I, I mean, it definitely, I, although I would also say like there, there is a caveat. You have to also understand what you're what you're ask what you're signing yourself up for, particularly if you are a person of color. 
because if you, you tend Elaborate. to be tell me more tell me more tend to be the only person with a contrary perspective in the room and so i'm not suggesting that you diminish your voice i think it would be irresponsible of me to not say that your actions could also have consequences um and you should be cognizant of that when you decide to exercise it and it's unfortunate that that is the reality but again i think it would be irresponsible for me to just say oh yeah just whatever because yeah. i also again like i'm at my a point in my career where i do have the privilege to be able to look and say look if y'all don't like what i say we're good i don't need to work here I'm good. Like I will find there are plenty of companies and teams that will snatch me up. I'm good. Um I that that is an absolute privilege and I don't want to diminish that at all because there are a lot of folks who are not in that situation to be able to make that statement. So um uh you know that, You have to be strategic. You have to be strategic about it. At least that's that's my approach. You do, but I mean the the, the ideal place the, the ideal situation is to be in a situ uh to 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 be in an organization that that inherently celebrates that right like there's a difference between you not hurting me for it and you celebrating me for it um and i don't want to be in a place that just is like oh yeah well you could say you can bring bring up contrary uh uh, uh you can be a you can be a, a, a voice of dissent and um we won't hurt we won't set you back for it we won't let it hurt your performance review but you're not celebrating that either so like because uh, I, I know I know what to do to get pr to get promoted. Like I know how to move my career forward. Um, and so essentially, what you're saying is like you voicing that opinion is not going to set me back, but it ain't moving me forward either, which is not which is not helpful either. So um, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned made that made that one comment. So Emmanuel, you were born and raised in Pittsburgh. So give us a little bit. What is it like growing up in Pittsburgh? <laughs> and you know how? I mean. I, you, you're born and raised in Pittsburgh and then, you know, you would, now you're in Silicon Valley, you're in AI. I'm really curious to see what your childhood looked like and when did you make that shift to tech and AI? When did you know, like in your, did you know that in your childhood? Never, right. never. And if you asked me, I would have laughed at you. I would have laughed you out of the room probably for the last like 20 years, <laughs> maybe up until 20 years ago, rather. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, growing up in Pittsburgh, I think was a Pittsburgh's an interesting place. Um, it's wait, wait, you're not a Steelers fan, are you? Uh, right, I was gonna ask. You you already know. You already <laughs> sir, know. you didn't put that. On, you you didn't put that. On he didn't. He, he snuck, he he snuck in. This. I'm sorry, he snuck in. You already. There was there was a reason. I have to get better at betting. Oh man, there was a, there was okay. a reason I didn't ex explicitly mention that. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> All right, you're a bumblebee. I get it. Cool. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, growing up in Pittsburgh is an interesting place, right? Because it was a steel town. Um, it was recession-proof. Well, they called it recession-proof. The reason they called it recession-proof is because technically our industry left before the Great Recession hit. So we had to rebound on education and uh, healthcare. So uh, we had some more stability during the recession. Anyway, um, it was, it, I mean, I was an only child, heavily involved in sports. Um, I played, played pretty much any, every sport under the sun, except swimming. I'm not trying to perpetuate stereotypes, right? But 
your boys <laughs> <in the Pittsburgh>. so <laughs> i'm gonna be honest like i'm not i'm not as as, like if you threw me in a pool i could get out if you put me in an ocean like we're gonna have some problems like i might have to put some hands on somebody right if you, if you push off a boat so my daughter's got some floaties we can uh I've got lots I don't of even trust them, man. Like, I, I was on a jet ski once, and I fell off the back of the jet ski, um, and I, I legitimately thought I was going to die. I had a life vest on, but I didn't trust that life vest. I don't float either, so there's that. I don't. I, I really don't float. And the amount of people who tried to convince me that I can float is I, – I should charge char like betting people $100. Teach me how to float, and I'll give you $100. Because I'm telling you, I don't float. I sink. So swimming, obviously, is not my my thing. But um, yeah, so I grew up, I, you know, growing in Pittsburgh was interesting because it's it's not a tiny town. It's not a tiny city, but it's not a big city either. And I think it kind of gave you a little bit of uh, uh, it gave you the opportunity, for at least maybe my parents the opportunity, to give me some freedom and flexibility. Uh, because I'm not gonna the chances of me like ruining my life. Uh, there's not too much to get into, right? Like there's, there's not too much trouble you, you, you really can get into. That's, that's a lie. You certainly can get in trouble anywhere. Um, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't enough to, that you can get lost. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't such a big city that you can get lost. There was a tight sense of community. I, I really do appreciate Pittsburgh for what it is, but it is, it is a kind of a sleepy city. It is a very slow city. Um, and, you know, the moment I had an opportunity to get out, I really felt that that was important because a lot of folks don't leave Pittsburgh. I call it like the, the, if you don't leave by the Pittsburgh trap, is what I called it. If you don't leave by 20, you never leave. Um, and so, you know, as an only child, my mom was, you know, people were always like, Rhonda, you know, my mother's name's Rhonda. She's like, Rhonda, 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 how, how do you feel? You know, your son's going to graduate. He's going to leave you. Your baby's going to leave you. And she's like, I've been prepared for this day since he was born. Like I had known since he was growing up, he is not staying here. Um, and as soon as I have a chance, it's gone. Um, Biggest contributing factor to your success. Like, so on this show, we try to bring on people highly successful like yourself. And we try to figure out what is that X factor? Like you've achieved a ton. What, what do you think it is that's got you to where you're at right now? Yeah, I think to me, this is a very simple question. Um, and the answer is, I intentionally understand that I could could not and should not try to do it by myself. So I have an incredible number of mentors that I maintain relationships and have maintained with relationships with since pre-college because I've recognized that there is so much knowledge that they possess that can help steer and guide me in directions to help me not go down roadblocks or avoid roadblocks that they've hit. Like, I don't, if you have the blueprint, why am I going to stumble over potholes? I don't want to do that. I want the fastest direction to get to where I want to go. And if you have the roadmap, give me the roadmap. Um, and it doesn't mean you can't adapt and think about it and contextualize it for your own life. But I think, you know, regardless of whether I'm talking about a project um, or if I'm talking about, you know, advice on salary ne negotiation or if I'm talking about, you know, making a decision. I was, you know, I talked to my mom last night about my, my, my kind of this, this thesis for equity at Coursera um, because I was, I was just racking my brain and I was just stuck and struggling. And instead of suffering in silence, I made a call because I don't feel that it diminishes my, my excellence or my brilliance or, or, or any of this stuff whatsoever. 
Um, and, uh, you know, everything that I've done, even at, you know, I was thinking uh, earlier when I, you know, I texted Sergio a couple of days ago, I'm like, hey man, like what kind of questions are you thinking about? And I always was, I was always imagining like, what is the question to like, what is the biggest mistake you've made? And I was like, oh my goodness, like, I hate this question. Like, <laughs> like this is like in interviews too, it's like, what's the word? Yeah. And I was like, oh man. And I thought about it and I was like, well, the, probably the answer is spending too much time trying to perfect stuff on my own. Because yeah. every, every project that I think I've, I've touched, that I've driven, I'm not saying I've driven them all perfectly and right, but because I've trusted and relied on a team and people to help me, they have always helped me ensure that the worst outcome never happened. Now, that doesn't mean, it, again, didn't mean things weren't smooth, went smooth, doesn't mean things were perfect, doesn't mean things weren't frustrating, exhausting, and all that stuff, but... Um, I just think there are so many instances where, you know, I, I've just had to recognize that there is no way that I can or anyone just goes through life alone. And that's not the best way from a professional perspective to, to, to build up, um, to, to build up your experience. There's just so much value in, in having other people's, uh, input. And again, it doesn't mean you just take it as de facto truth. You should do your own research. You should do your own reading. You should do your own learning. But, you know, even when it came to AI, like I, self i learned myself like i didn't go to school for this i studied industrial psychology in, in, in college um, but it was something that i thought was really important i thought it was really interesting and it was something i was passionate about and so i used one of my mentors um uh his name is steve i've known steve at you know he was one of, actually my first mentor at google um and he was the director of business development there and he's been an amazing resource and i've maintained that relationship uh, at that point it was the entire i met with him every single month since my first month on campus when i moved into ai it was probably my third year at google so that's a lot of time spent with somebody yeah. um and he made an introduction to a, a guy he was actually focused on business development for uh, google ai and he gave me the introduction to a, a, a gentleman named Pete Warden, who was the, uh, I think he was the, the eng lead for mobile TensorFlow. And he, I was like, look, I want to learn machine learning. I don't know where to start. I'm willing to put in the effort. Just help point me in the direction of resources and I'll handle the rest. So he showed me some textbook. He showed me some stuff online. I remember the first day he sent it, he sent me the information. I completed the code lab online and I sent it back to him. And he was like, I didn't expect you to do this like this fast and I was like well I'm serious like I really want to learn this stuff and from that day forward like I would read stuff through the textbook I would meet with him and we would discuss it we would talk about it um again so like even my even my my transition and move uh, my transition into artificial intelligence was spurred because of someone um and so I you know it would it would be remiss of me to say that like I by far by far the thing that has helped me get to where I am is our people. Um, and, and, and allowing myself, allowing myself to allow people to help me has been okay. by far the best, the, the, the most impactful thing. One thing I love about your mindset is, you know, if just from the beginning of the show to now, I can just tell like you have a total team mindset, you know, from like your analogy about, you know, football and what you just said right now. I, I love that you've embraced that and realized the power and working as a team. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe also because I've tried to do it on my own. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's, nah, like, that's not the, 
Yeah. <laughs> again, like I, I, I like, I like to think about th efficiency, right? You have a limited capacity. You have a limited. You have, there are very real limitations to human cognition and humans' capacity, from an emotional perspective, cognitive perspective, all these things. So the more you try to bundle this up, and this is not, I can say this now because my therapist, Dr. Foot, uh, has been working on me for the last, you know, five, six years. Her name, so, her, his, her, her name is Dr. Foot. His name is Dr. Foot. Okay. Dr. Foot, F-O-O-T-E. Um, he's, he's, which, yeah, he's, he's fantastic. But he's been kicking my butt for the last five years. And like, I've been, it, he's helped me understand that, like, how, how critical and important that is. Um, and uh, at least, actually, I think what he's really helped me do is recognize how important that has always been. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So one other thing, you know, I want to talk about is, I've noticed that just by looking through your bio and hearing, you know, about you, you spend a lot of time giving back to the community. You're, you know, big brother, big sister. You're on the board of the Youth Impact Hub for Oakland. Why did you start volunteering, and what, what keeps you? What keeps you volunteering? Like, what what is your motivation for that? Yeah, I the. Big Brothers and Big Sisters, I haven't actually worked with Big Brothers and Big Sisters in, in, a, in, a, in a minute, or East Bay College Fund. So I actually participated in both of those. I think I diminished my, I think I scaled away from those organizations maybe two years ago or so. Um, uh, and it was actually largely to, to focus more on Youth Impact Hub at the time um, and some other work-related uh, kind of efforts. But uh, I think my, one of the things that has always been important to me is recognizing Again, I, I think I've said this earlier, is recognizing how much privilege I've had. Um, and the moment that I was given a platform, from the very moment I was given any platform, whether it was, you know, understanding how to transition from college, to, you know, from high school to college and working with, you know, stu young students who were thinking about going to school, um, or it was me transitioning from college into the workforce um, when I went to Google, and trying to help people understand how to navigate that transition or how to navigate college. Uh, I just feel that, you know, you go through life and you get, you, you gain all these experiences and it's not to hoard them for yourself. And I, I, I truly believe like it is our responsive collective responsibility to be able to take that knowledge and to pass that on because if no one, I would not be here if no one had done that for me. So who am I to not do the same? at every waking opportunity. And, um, you know, if I, and if, I, if I truly believe in equity, if, if I'm out here preaching that people need to think about the locus of control and use their privilege as, as, as a tool to help bring about equity, um, I would be a total hypocrite if I was not doing the same. And um, I think a lot of that I've, I've learned from watching, you know, people like my uncle David who uh, is, back in Pittsburgh, but, you know, he was always heavily involved in community work and w always stressed the importance of thinking back and not forgetting the community that you came from, because it is very easy to move off to California um, and, yeah. you know, think everything's fantastic. And, and one of the things that actually was really disturbing to me um, was uh, I, I didn't even realize that I spent so much time with nonprofits and organizations and, and especially when I was at Google um, in the Bay Area, I haven't worked with much of anything from Pittsburgh, the place that I grew up in. 
right? Like everyone's moving out to the, to the West Coast and all these other areas and then giving all the support to places like Oakland and San Jose and San Francisco and the peninsula. But what about these communities that have raised you, that, that need your support? Um, and, you know, it, it, it was something that was completely, for a while, I just, it just didn't even hit me. Um, but he had always stressed the importance of thinking back and not forgetting where you came from, because again, it is so easy to get, to get caught up um, in the, just the daily struggles of life, I guess, um, to, to think about, you know, you have a lot to be thankful for, um, and everything that you have learned and everything that you believe is a byproduct of all the collective experience you've had over the course of your life. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that has really created kind of that, that drive for me to continue to, to, to contribute and give back to the community, um, uh, and, and, and hope that, again, that will continue to, to be something that is passed on. Love it, man. Yeah. That's Fantastic. Nice. Man, I, we're so happy that you came on the show, man. You, you, you gave us some wonderful insight in your life and your path and just very grateful to hear all of it. I'm going to end with a quote. Like cancer, racism and prejudice are often silent killers. And similarly, to diagnose it, you must undergo a biopsy to gain insight into the underlying conditions. This invasive procedure is critical because of what I often call the compounding interest. Nature of inequality that leads to, in this analogy, comorbidities that create and persist the conditions for injustice. Simply put, identifying, diagnosing and treating these issues requires education, concerted effort and discomfort whoever said that is wise beyond their years <laughs> no uh no that's i i i i i firmly believe that is that is that is accurate and i i'm i'm really encouraged to see the the amount of willingness of people to to sit in discomfort and be be uncomfortable uh particularly in this this very challenging social climate um and so uh Again, if we are to make progress, we have to be comfortable with discomfort. And um, if, we, if we get there, there's a lot of stuff we can do. But thank you so much for having me. This was an amazing time, Lee and, and Sergio. Yeah. I really, 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 really enjoyed our hour, hour or so together. Thanks for coming we in. We love having uh, you on, man. All right, Manuel. Thank you so much, man. We're signing off. Thank you for listening to the Free Retiree Show. So long for now. Advisory services offered through Securities American Advisors, a registered investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Securities offered through Securities American Incorporated. Member FINRA, www.finra.org. SIPC, www.sipc.org. A separate entity. Lee Michael Murphy is licensed with the California Department of Insurance. License 0H18660. The Free Retiree, Securities American Advisors, and Securities America Incorporated are separate entities. Career advisor Sergio Patterson and attorney Matt McElroy are not affiliated with Security America companies. Securities America Incorporated, Security America Advisors, and its representatives do not provide tax or legal advice. Therefore, it's important to coordinate with your tax or legal advisor regarding your specific situation. 
Third-party sourced information comments are not verified, may not be accurate, and are not necessarily representative of all client or audience experience. A portion of this event was paid by a third party. The opinions of career advisor Sergio Patterson do not reflect the opinions of Facebook Incorporated. The opinions of attorney Matt McElroy do not reflect the opinions of Castaneda and company.